Section 19 of The Ocean, A General Account of the Science of the Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean, A General Account of the Science of the Sea by John Murray. Chapter 10. The Geospheres. Part 1. The Earth is the only planet of our solar system having oceans on its rocky surface. Mars and the Moon had apparently at one time large bodies of water on their surfaces, but these seem now to have disappeared. The same fate is possibly in store for our oceans. We look back on a past when the crust of the Earth was in a molten condition, with a temperature of 400 degrees Fahrenheit, when what is now the water of the ocean existed as water vapor in the atmosphere. We can imagine a future when the waters of the ocean will, because of the low temperature, have become solid rock, and over this will roll an ocean of liquid air about forty feet in depth. The earth is at present in the terraqueous phase of its evolution. That is to say, its surface is occupied by continents and islands, oceans, seas, lakes, and rivers. If we regard our earth as it is swung in space at the present time, we may see with the mind's eye that it is composed of concentric spheres or shells of matter in the gaseous liquid and solid or trans-solid states. These have been called geospheres, videlicet, the atmosphere, the hydrosphere, the lithosphere, the biosphere, the tectosphere, and the great centrosphere, which makes up by far the greatest mass and volume of the globe. To the interaction of these geospheres and to energy derived from internal and external sources, can be referred all the existing superficial phenomena of the planet. The atmosphere forms the outer shell, and is chiefly composed of a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen, together with water vapor, carbonic acid, and rarer gases like argon, neon, etc. Dust particles may also be considered as a constant constituent of the atmosphere. A complete mixture of the oxygen and nitrogen takes place throughout the whole atmospheric envelope, according to the known laws of gaseous diffusion, but the equilibrium of the aqueous vapor is continually disturbed by the ceaseless processes of condensation and evaporation, which vary in amount with every change of temperature and pressure. When, with the lowering of the temperature, water vapor becomes rain or ice or snow, great movements are brought about in the atmosphere warm, moist, and light air generally ascending in cyclonic areas, and cool, dry, and heavy air descending in anticyclonic areas. The gases of the atmosphere penetrate the soil and rocky crust, and are absorbed at the surface of the ocean, being carried to the greatest depths by the circulation of ocean waters. The hydrosphere has been specially considered in the preceding chapters. It is mostly made up of the waters of the ocean, and lakes and rivers also are included. Some of the water may be in the solid and gaseous states, as ice, snow, hail, and the water vapor of the atmosphere. Water likewise penetrates deeply into the rocky crust, where it produces the hydration of minerals, and water forms a large part of the biosphere. The biosphere, wherever water is present, or rather, wherever water, air, and earth are in contact, and commingle. Life in some of its many forms can usually be detected. Indeed, the whole planet may be regarded as clothed with the mantle of living matter. 
if we choose to give our imagination a little more rein, then we may say that within the biosphere a sphere of reason and intelligence has been evolved in man, who attempts to interpret and explain the cosmos. This may be called the psychosphere. The lithosphere consists of the hard rocky crust with which we are familiar on the continents and islands and on the floor of the ocean. We know the continental rocks by borings and mines to the depth of several thousand feet, but that portion, three-fourths of the whole, on which the ocean rests is known by actual observation only to the depth of a few feet, since our sounding tubes and dredges rarely penetrate deeper than three feet into the marine deposits. The rocks of the lithosphere are heterogeneous in structure and composition so far as they are open to direct observation. At some places, there are great extrusions of both acid and basic lavas. At other places there are granites and hornblendic and other gneisses, as well as vast strata of sandstones and limestones, and in the preceding chapter it is shown that marine deposits are heterogeneous. The deep-sea soundings recorded during the last half-century now permit us to draw some wide general conclusions concerning the topography and composition of the external surface of the rocky crust. The knowledge we have acquired relating to the depth of the ocean below sea level and the height of the dry land above sea level shows that the surface of the lithosphere, which has been calculated to have an area of about 197 millions of English square miles, may be regarded as consisting of 1. A great elevated plain comprising the surface of the continents, estimated to have an average height of about 2,250 feet above sea level and to cover an area of about 57 millions of square miles. Add to this the continental shelf, extending from the shoreline to the 100 fathoms line and covering an area of about 10 millions of square miles, and we have what may be called the continental area occupying in all about sixty-seven millions of square miles, or about one-third of the superficial area of the globe. 2. A connecting slope from the hundred fathoms line down to a depth of about seventeen hundred fathoms, the mean sphere level, which is called the continental slope, occupying about thirty millions of square miles, or about one-sixth of the superficial area of the globe. And 3 a great submerged plain, the floor of the ocean basins, estimated to have an average depth of about 15,000 feet below sea level, which is called the abyssal area, occupying about 100 millions of square miles, or fully one-half of the superficial area of the globe. The upper surface of the continental plain stands then on an average about two and a half miles above the submerged plain that forms the floor of the ocean. From this great submerged region, volcanic cones frequently rise above the surface of the ocean, forming oceanic islands. Sometimes they are capped at the sea surface by coral reefs in the form of atolls, or they may not rise to the surface, and then form submerged banks covered with a white mantle of living and dead calcium carbonate organisms. Along the sides of these great cones and between them, as well as on the tops of submerged cones, there is evidence of marine currents, probably due to the tidal wave, but with this exception there is no evidence of transport or erosion over the surface of the great abyssal plain. It is essentially an area of deposition. The sun's rays never reach this deeply submerged part of the lithosphere, 
and the temperature over the whole of the deep ocean floor never rises higher than two or three degrees above the freezing point of fresh water. If we put our finger on a map of the South Pacific halfway between South America and Australia, we indicate an area farther removed from continental land than any other area on the globe. If a successful trawling be made in this area at a depth of over 2,400 fathoms, the net will contain several hundreds of shark's teeth, carcharodon, oxyrina, lamna, and dozens of ear-bones of whales, a few beaks of ziphioid whales, and a few fragments of the more areolar bones of cetaceans. All these organic remains will be deeply impregnated with the peroxide of manganese, and some of the ear-bones and shark's teeth will be surrounded by concentric layers of black manganese nearly an inch in thickness. Some of the teeth and ear-bones belong to extinct species. Besides these, there will be hundreds of other manganese nodules formed around pelagonitic and other volcanic fragments. These will all be embedded in a dark brown clay, consisting of hydrated silicate of alumina and oxides of iron and manganese, and this clay will contain crystals of philipsite in the form of balls, aggregates varying in number, twins or single individuals. Lastly, a magnet will draw from the clay a good number of magnetic spherules, believed to be of cosmic origin. Some have a black coating which covers a metallic nucleus of iron and nickel. Others, brown in color and crystalline in structure, are called chondres, and have hitherto only been found in meteorites. This is a very remarkable assemblage of organic and inorganic materials. How is their presence at this spot and depth to be explained? The depth is too great for more than a few of the calcareous surface shells to reach the bottom, and there are very few remains of siliceous organisms in the deposit. Ordinary detritus from the continents cannot be detected, while volcanic ash and pumice are present. It seems evident that very little of the ordinary deposit-forming minerals reach these deep red clay areas, and that in consequence rare and unusual constituents come into prominence. The materials have all been for a very long time exposed to the action of seawater. The manganese nodules and zeolites are secondary products formed in situ. The volcanic materials are all profoundly altered or disintegrated. Only the hard dentine of the shark's teeth and only the densest of the cetacean bones remain. The cosmic spherules have fallen from interstellar space, and they are found more abundantly here than elsewhere, simply because they are not covered up by any large amount of other materials. In an area such as has just been pictured, the rate of deposition is at a minimum. A foot of deposit may not have been laid down since the early tertiary period. All the materials we have mentioned may occasionally be met with in the other varieties of deep-sea deposits, but never in such abundance as on the red clay areas. The composition of these red clays warrants the belief that they would, when consolidated, form rock with a relatively high specific gravity. The animals dredged from such a typical red clay deposit, remote from continental shores, are few in number, although they show archaic characters, dyskina, and other brachiopods, stephanosyphus, crinoids, siliceous sponges, etc. If there be what may be called desert areas on the sea floor, then they are certainly situated in these red clay regions. Another peculiarity of the red clays is the absence of quartz particles, 
indeed all the truly pelagic deposits far from land contain extremely few traces of quartz sand except where the ocean is affected by floating ice this is a very important matter for in all the terrigenous deposits laid down in deep or shallow water near the continents quartz is the most characteristic constituent making up frequently more than half of the deposit indeed the analogues of the now forming terrigenous deposits are to be found in all geological periods whereas no analogues can be found of the truly pelagic deposits now being laid down on the floor of the ocean which cover fully one-half of the surface of the earth if these terrigenous deposits have been continually pushed up on the continental areas or thrust under them in a more or less viscous or plastic condition ever since the first precipitation of rain on the globe then this would tend to make the continental areas of the lithosphere lighter than the sub-oceanic areas because of the lower specific gravity of these siliceous deposits if the surface of the earth was originally a molten mass we may assume that all the silica sio2 was originally in combination with bases and that the primeval rocks were basic rather than acid in composition with the first precipitation of rain on this primeval crust many substances were doubtless washed down from the atmosphere and many new compounds were formed when the surface cooled and the primeval crust formed the processes which we now see in operation would soon be established as at the present time carbonic acid being in aqueous solution would attack the felspars and other silicates carry the bases away in solution and a considerable part of the silica would be left on the continents to form vein quartz when this rock was again melted and reformed it would contain more silica than the original one and would be more acid in composition with the repetition of this process the rocks on the continents would become on the whole more and more acid would approach the composition of granite and gneiss the processes here indicated would ultimately result in a great accumulation of silica on the continental areas and consequently the continents would become the lighter portions of the external crust and necessarily stand at a higher level than the floor of the oceans in this way through the action of forces which we can now observe in operation the surface features of the external crust appear to have been slowly developed we have seen as a result of the study of deep-sea surroundings that the continental blocks of the lithosphere stand on the whole about two and a half miles above the sub-oceanic blocks and physicists generally believe for mechanical reasons that these must be the lighter portions of the lithosphere or they would not be elevated above the depressed portions and many observations go to confirm this view in a paper discussing the recent observations on the measurement of the intensity of gravity on the ocean g w littlehales says quote, concerning the dispute as to whether the oceans have always had the same general extent and positions since the waters were gathered together or as to whether by alternate rising and sinking of the earth's crust oceans and continents have successively occupied the same areas the deciding stroke appears to have been delivered in favour of the permanence of the ocean basins on account of the extreme improbability that there could be such a shifting of materials in the depths of the earth's crust as would cause the sub-oceanic heaviness to give place to the subcontinental lightness which has been found to subsist should this result be accepted as clearly established then what is to be said about the sunken continents and land bridges which have been constructed across ocean basins by biologists and geologists 
to explain the distribution of rock formations and of fossil and living organisms. The western mountains of Europe and the eastern mountains of the United States are supposed to be fragments of the great mountain ranges of Atlantis, now buried beneath the floor of the North Atlantic Ocean. Again, portions of South America, of Africa, and of India are believed to be fragments of Gondwana land, now buried beneath the submerged floor of the great Southern Ocean. The study of ocean depths and ocean deposits does not seem in any way to support the view that continental land has disappeared beneath the floor of the ocean in the manner just indicated. It is no doubt very difficult to account for the distribution of rocks, of fossils, and of living creatures on the existing continents and islands, but this distribution is better interpreted by the North Polar theory of the origin of land animals and their slow and interrupted spread along the three great south-reaching continental tongues of land than by great hypothetical land bridges. It is in like manner difficult to account for the evidences of coral reefs in the polar areas and of glacial periods towards the equator, but it seems easier, from a physical point of view, to assume a shifting of the poles, a second rotation of the earth, or even a change in the position of the continental blocks relatively to each other, as well as in their geographical position on the surface of the globe, possibly after the separation of the moon, than to accept the theory that whole continents have completely disappeared below the bed of the existing oceans. The existing superficial layers of the lithosphere, both on the continents and beneath the oceans, appear to be parcelled out into great earth blocks, separated from each other by faults and fissure lines, along which volcanic action and gaseous emanations take place, and through which massive outflows of molten matter occur. But there seems little evidence to show that magmas have other than a quite local extent. On the whole, these volcanic materials appear to be lighter and more acid in composition over the continental areas and heavier and more basic over the sub-oceanic areas. The continental earth blocks apparently tend to become elevated, whereas what information we have about the floor of the ocean indicates that there the similar earth blocks tend on the whole to subside. It is not likely that faults and fissures extend deep into the lithosphere. They must be regarded rather as relatively superficial phenomena. End of section 19 Read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2022.